If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 617. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders. Free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. Also, go to brianmclanahan.com. Click on the support tab. You can throw a few pennies my way. Keep these lights on. Help keep the podcast going. You can click on the shop tab at brianmclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Send me those show requests. I do appreciate your input and what you want to hear. And in fact, today is a listener-generated episode. So I'm really excited to do these. We're going to have a great week at the Brian McClanahan Show this week. I've got some pretty cool stuff to talk about. In fact, the first couple of episodes are going to be listener-generated episodes. So let's get started. So this is an episode about Abraham Lincoln. And as the title suggests of the podcast, His Greatest Speeches, it's actually a podcast on a review of a book about Abraham Lincoln. Now, let me say this. This year at McClanahan Academy, you're going to get a class on Abraham Lincoln. It's going to be a reading seminar. I'm going to cover many of Lincoln's quote-unquote greatest speeches. I'm going to give you the Brian McClanahan rundown of these speeches and what they really mean and what kind of nonsense is in them. But I want to focus on this particular book and this review more than anything else. This is actually published in The Federalist, and a listener sent it to me. What I found hilarious about this at the beginning of this, see, The Federalist is a funny website. It's a funny website because they like to position themselves as anti-neoconservative. Yet, this particular piece would be the epitome of neoconservatism, right? So at the top of this, uh, of this article, as I'm going over this today, there was a breaking news. Uh, neoconservatives have finally found some type of invasion they can oppose, and that is, of course, Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter. So the Federalist is bashing neoconservatives when the entire prospect of neoconservatism is based on Abraham Lincoln, right? So they're going to praise Abraham Lincoln while criticizing neoconservatives. You can't make up this kind of stupidity, but this is exactly what we see in Conservative Inc. And the Federalist is certainly part of Conservative Inc. Now, every now and then they run a pretty good piece. And every now and then they refer back to the right people. Even this particular article refers back to Kevin Goodsman, who wrote a great article on the 1619 Project a couple of years ago. In fact, now three years ago. Um, that said, the Abbeville Institute will be doing a rebuttal of the 1619 Project called Virginia First, and it's going to be out sometime uh, probably early next year, uh, but it's going to be a really fantastic thing. So you're going to want to see that when it comes out. It'll be a book. There's going to be a documentary. It's going to be fantastic, but I'm just kind of letting you all know about that. It's going to be really good. But I want to, I want to focus on this particular piece because it says a lot of ridiculous things, and obviously the book itself is ridiculous. 
Lincoln's speeches are word salad most of the time. I mean, they, they don't even make any sense. They don't make any sense because Lincoln is a bundle of contradictions. He doesn't even know what he's saying half the time. In fact, he even, look, the Gettysburg Address, this is why I did a, a video for this on YouTube. If you go out and look for Abbeville Institute and do uh, the Gettysburg Address, you'll see a little five-minute video that I did on that particular topic. And at the time when Lincoln gave the Gettysburg Address, he thought it was awful. In fact, the press generally thought it was awful. They called it a dishwatery utterance. It meant nothing. It really meant nothing. It, and, and the problem with this, of course, is that people went and ran with this and called it one of the greatest speeches ever. And even in this particular book, now while the author doesn't focus on that speech, um, it's still, uh, I mean, it's, it's a joke. Now, I think actually she does cover it. Let me, uh, and, I'll, and I'll get into that. Uh, yeah, and she covers the Gettysburg Address, I'm sorry. The Second Inaugural and the Lyceum Address. So I'll get into all those two in the class on Abraham Lincoln. I, for some reason, for a second, I had a brain drain there where I thought she didn't cover that. But she does, right? So you, look, the Gettysburg Address revolutionized the revolution. It made stuff up. Now, what the author, her name is uh, Diana Schaub. What the author is going to suggest is that Lincoln... Howard had a had a history of using the Gettysburg Address to defend his I'm sorry the the Declaration of Independence to to defend his positions leading into the Gettysburg Address and I, I think that's true. But to Schaub and to others, even uh, Mike Sabo, who wrote this piece for the Federalist, what they fail to realize about that is when they criticize people like John C. Calhoun or uh, anyone else who wrote negative things about the Declaration. All of that stuff started happening as early as about 1795, maybe even a little earlier. In fact, if you go back and read John Taylor of Caroline, who was certainly, I mean, he's from Virginia, he was certainly on board with, with Jefferson. He was very Jeffersonian himself. He said, we all realized that we were making a mistake with the Declaration pretty quickly after it was written. Uh, that we had this infatuation with the principles outlined in it. We all thought of these lofty things. I mean, there was some of that. But they all realized, whoops, this isn't really a good idea. Very quickly, he says, after, after we had, had uh, gotten into the war and we understood that the Declaration was going to be an unmitigated disaster. And eventually what happened, he's saying this in the 1790s, by the way. He's not saying this in the 1840s or 50s or the 30s. He's saying it in the 1790s. So the fact is, you've got members of the founding generation recognizing that the Declaration was problematic in terms of the language that was in it, not, not the principles of independent itself, independence itself, which is essentially all it was. And that's what I find really interesting about Sabo going out and linking to Kevin Gutzman in this, because Gutzman says it in this piece that he links to that the Declaration meant nothing. It was a, a document for independence and political separation. This is what it was. It didn't mean anything else. People ran with it, absolutely. Abolitionists ran with it. All kinds of people ran with it. But that's not what it meant. And so basically what you have with Lincoln and others is the refounding of America. The recreation of America. This is what the Republicans said they were doing in the 1860s. They were recreating America. It's what Eric Foner, it's what all the leftists essentially want the war to mean. They want Reconstruction to mean. They want a whole new America to come out of 
the war in the 1860s. And for some reason, conservatives want to be on board with that. Now, they want to be on, I say for some reason, I know why they want to do it. It goes back to Harry Jaffa, and Harry Jaffa insisting that equality was conservative, and they want to do it because they want to take the fire out of the left. If they can make equality a conservative position, if they can say that they're the Lincolnians, that they are the ones who are in favor of all this stuff that Lincoln stood for, if, as a matter of fact, they're Republicans, and we are the party of Lincoln, if they can do that, then theoretically... They can win the culture war. They can get uh, minorities to vote for them because they were ones really were in favor of all the stuff. The Democrats were just racist. But you see, these are bad arguments. Uh, and they're bad arguments because the Republicans don't have the biggest bowl of candy. It doesn't matter what happened in the 1860s. Really, it doesn't matter for voters today who are thinking about this stuff. In fact, all that matters in the 1860s is that to them, to the people that would maybe be persuaded by this line of thinking, is that the Republican Party doesn't advocate reparations. The Republican Party doesn't advocate canceling student loan debt. The Republican Party doesn't advocate $600 checks per week. The Republican Party doesn't advocate uh, free health care free healthcare or free child care for all. The Republican Party doesn't have a big bowl of candy. These people could care less what Abraham Lincoln said or did. In fact, they would probably cancel Abraham Lincoln if they could because he said some pretty racist things. So all of the people that are trying to bring back Lincoln, if we can just go back to Lincoln, if we can just have a situation where Lincoln becomes our guy in the Republican Party, we would win every single debate. We would win every single election. We would win them all. He's one of us. So... Do you want to cancel rent? How about student loan debt? You want to spend, I mean, you, you want to raise taxes on the rich, right? You want, to, you want to have a billionaire's tax. I mean, this is all these people care about. Lincoln is a means to an end. Certainly, the left would say, well, yeah, Lincoln's great. You know, I mean, sure, he, he abolished slavery. We got to recognize him as a great president. But they also are going to say things like, well, you know, Lincoln said some pretty racist things. Uh, Lincoln certainly wasn't a man that, really believed in our position of equality. He didn't at all. So, yeah, I mean, we can. Lincoln is usable, but he's not the basis of anything the left wants. Now, I will say this. Lincoln was a nationalist. He wanted to remake America. He wanted to nationalize everything. I mean, this is what the Republican Party said. Right? You know, uh, This is what they said. John Sherman said it. Wants to nationalize everything. I talked about that before. All right, so let's get into this piece because it's not long, but there are some things in here that are just kind of silly. So, Sabo begins, In his day, members of the upper-class society likely viewed Abraham Lincoln with a mixture of amusement and revulsion. Well, it's not just upper-class Americans. A lot of Americans viewed him that way. In fact, uh, James Byard called him an ordinary Western man. I mean, Lincoln wasn't that impressive. He was acceptable because the Republican Party thought that he was moderate enough on some issues that maybe some people in the border states or maybe some Southerners would vote for him. And this is, of course, where you get into the Cooper Union address and some of these things. So again, it was just word salad. I'm going to talk about that speech uh, tomorrow, probably, with uh, some things that I saw this past week. 
With his high, shrill voice, Lincoln had neither an impressive family lineage nor much of a formal education, save for less than a single year of schooling. Cartoonists and political opponents regularly assailed his gangly, awkward features and unfairly attempted to portray him as a country bumpkin. (laughs) He was. There's not even any evidence that Lincoln was really that literate. Uh, Just isn't. So he was a country bumpkin. I mean, the, the fact is his father was probably a squatter. Um, Lincoln certainly was a popular attorney, but um, as Kevin Johnson has pointed out, he was more like a closer. Lincoln would come in at the end and make a great speech because he liked to tell stories. If Lincoln was good at anything, it was telling tall tales and stories, and everyone knew Lincoln was a liar. This is why they called him Honest Abe. He lied all the time. So, I mean, you can't believe anything he did. This is where all these neocons and all these Lincolnians, all these Hillsdale people, because Sabo is a Hillsdale alumnus, it's where all these people get all this wrong. We shouldn't pay attention to Lincoln at all. If you really want to conserve anything, you're not going to be a Lincolnian. Because Lincoln was a bulldozer. Lincoln was a wrecking ball. He destroyed the original Federal Republic between 1861 and 1865. Nothing was left of it. Certainly, there was an attempt to rekindle interest in state powers and federal federalism and decentralization, but that was fleeting in the in the late 19th century. And by the early 20th century, progressivism, which is based on Lincolnian nationalism, had completely transformed America. It's all Lincoln. Especially as a young man, Lincoln was generally not surrounded by individuals of approved intellectual distinction. Instead, he mostly interacted with crude people within a narrow horizon, according to his renowned biographer, Lord Charnwood. Despite his odd features and lack of credentials, he was a man of prodigious talents who possessed a steel-trap mind. Our nation's greatest president, that should be a, an asterisk, right? No, no, that's an opinion, not a substantial fact. Lincoln also was its most profound thinker and speaker. I would say that's not the case either. Most profound thinker. Think about what Sabo just said there. Lincoln is the greatest president and most profound thinker in American history. More important than Jefferson. More important than Hamilton. More important than all of those guys. No one from the founding generation would be as important. None of them. No no one in the 20th century matches Lincoln. None of them. Think about what he just said there. It's ridiculous. He sat at the feet of William Shakespeare and the King James Bible, whose cadence, word choice, and poetry shaped his soul. Come on. This is just stupidity. Uh, there's the <laughs> Sat at the feet of William Shakespeare and the King James Bible. Lincoln's Christianity is circumspect at best, and I would say that it's not, it's not too clear that Lincoln was always Uh, sitting at the feet of William Shakespeare. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Combining penetrating political analysis and deep theological insights, his speeches feature some of the greatest rhetorical feats in human history with an even nobler purpose, the salvation of free government. Now, that's what makes me laugh. Salvation of free government, right? So, Lincoln was saving free government. Now, anyone with half a brain can understand that's not what Lincoln was doing. He wasn't saving free government at all. If he wanted to save free government, he would have let the South go. If he wanted to have government of the people, by the people, and for the people, he would have let the South go. 
The South would have seceded, and that would have been it. You would have had seven states out of the Union, and that would have been the end of it. You would have had a Southern Confederacy doing whatever they wanted. The United States could have bottled them up. It could have blocked them in the territories. It could have done all kinds of things. But you see, by letting the South go, think about what happens. Letting the South go means that, first of all, you have eight slave states still in the Union, by the way. And this is something I often point out to all these righteous cause mythers. You had two slaveholding republics fighting it out, federal republics fighting it out in the 1860s. In fact, slavery didn't end in the United States until December of 1865. You saw slave auctions in Kentucky in November of 1865. So we had two slaveholding federal republics. After the war's over, of course, you have a national government. And that's not because of a structural change, but because of a political change that Lincoln brought. But free government? Free government? What free government? You coerced millions of people to stay in the Union they didn't want to be in. You slaughtered nearly a million people for that objective. Is that free government? Take our union or die? Is that free government? Doesn't sound very free to me. That's what Sabo is making the claim here. And this is what all these people say. In his greatest speeches, How Lincoln Moved the Nation, Diana Schwab gives a close reading of three of Lincoln's landmark speeches, the well-known Gettysburg Address and Second Inaugural, and the less celebrated but vital Lysim Address. A professor of political science at Loyola University, Maryland, Schaub reads these speeches as, together as an extended commentary on human nature, the ever-present threats to republican government, the habits and virtues self-governing citizens need to possess, and the God who watches over his natural order. Schaub argues in this brief but deeply learned work that these speeches lay out Lincoln's sustained reflections on the crucial years of 1787, the Lyceum Address, when the Constitution was written, 1776, the Gettysburg Address, when the nation declared its independence, and more controversially, 1619, the second inaugural, the year she says the first slaves were brought to America. In her patient, careful excavation of each speech, she uncovers many hidden riches along the way. The many hidden riches. For example, most people know that Lincoln's famous invocation of four score and seven years ago in the Gettysburg Address points back to 1776. Continuing to dig, Schaub discovers in previous speeches that Lincoln rarely used the phrase, regular, I'm sorry, regularly used the phrase 80 years ago in different variations rather than the famous language taken from the 90th Psalm. She convincingly argues that Lincoln made this change to strike a somber, darker tone and show his audience there could be limits on the lifespan of mankind's political collectives, just as there are on individual life. Now, wait a second here. Um, there's no evidence Lincoln did any of this. This is all conjecture. This is, this, is, this is bad history. Show me evidence that this is what Lincoln was trying to do or that he was just scribbling some crap out on a, on a train and he, well, let's make it like this. There's no evidence that Lincoln was trying to do anything here. He thought it was a bad speech. The press thought it was terrible. But yet, to Diana Schwab, no, no, no. Lincoln is creating a darker tone. There's limits on the lifespan of mankind's political collectives. Self-government is a fragile thing, and its transmission from one generation to the next is fraught with difficulties that Lincoln's audience then, and modern audiences now, may not fully appreciate. Page after page brims with similar insights. Lincoln 
knew all of these things. He saw the light. Ah, the heavens opened. The angels looked down. And there was Lincoln writing four score. Four score and seven years ago. There he was writing it. Because he wanted to strike a darker, somber tone. How about he was just trying to put together something in a word salad that might make sense? Again, a dishwatery utterance. Garbage. Schaub contends it is impossible to appreciate Lincoln's speeches fully without understanding the foundation on which they rested. The Declaration of Independence, though often drew his audience back to the frame of silver, the constitutionalism of the American founding, his most weighty and lucid thoughts came when discussing the apple of gold of the Declaration. Lincoln made appeals to the Declaration not only in nearly every major speech, but in letters and even scraps of paper, she writes. As Lincoln himself once stated, I have never had a feeling politically that not spring from the sentiments embodied in the Declaration of Independence. No, no, no. In his interpretation of the Declaration of Independence. Because if that's the case, then he would have let the South go. If he really believed the Declaration, then the South would have been allowed to go in 1860 and 61, and no war ever would have come. But somehow, Schaub and, of course, Sabo miss all of that. Of all the presidents, he was unquestionably the Declaration's greatest interpreter. Only Calvin Coolidge and John Quincy Adams have come close to matching his depth and perspective. Coolidge, who was a, a good president, and Adams, who was not, are the only ones. This is where I laugh. You know, I, I made a joke. You know, if we want to go back and find the, a president that everyone will agree with, it's John Quincy Adams. If you want to take away the stain of anything, it has to be John Quincy Adams. The only president who did no wrong. So this is, this is just really bad stuff, right? This interpretation, all these things. It's all just interpretation. Yes, Lincoln was interpreting... The Declaration. Incorrectly interpreting the Declaration. But he is interpreting it, and he's changing the meaning of it for, for the future. Of Lincoln's mediations on the Declaration, his most famous and shortest occurs in the Gettysburg Address. There he calls the principle that all men are created equal, what the Declaration labels a self-evident truth, instead of proposition, a term borrowed from geometry. Unlike self-evident, which Schaub notes doesn't require proof, a proposition must be demonstrated in practice. Due to the efforts of Southerners like John C. Calhoun and Northerners like such as Indiana Senator John Pettit, she reasons that natural human equality in 1863 had to be proved in action, that action being the restoration of a union dedicated to that ontological and moral principle. <laughs> so in other words, it had to be refounded, it had to be remade, it had to be an entirely different thing, which was a national government. Lincoln was, at his core, recreating America. It wasn't putting back together the Union. It's not restoring a Union. It's recreating America and creating a nation. But, you know, Calhoun and, of course, Pettit and many others weren't alone in saying these things. There were many others who said the exact same things. In the Civil War, as Schaub contends, Lincoln saw that not only was the nation dedicated to what that foundational axiom, but 
at stake, but also the very possibility of political life based on such premises. A failure of self-government in America would constitute the failure of popular government altogether, she argues. Well, it did fail. Self-government failed in 1861 because the South was coerced. If you really believe in self-government, then the South goes. And that's it. That's it. The South is out of the Union. Self-government's worked. But that's not what we got. In Lincoln's estimation, while slavery presented the most obvious challenge to Republican government, the rise of mob rule was another grave and likely related threat. In the Lyceum Address, he said that this popular form of despotism, quote, was common to the whole country, where outrages committed by mobs were in the everyday news of the times. Mobs of Mississippi and St. Louis, for instance, indiscriminately lynched blacks and whites who were thought to be helping them, gamblers and even random out-of-state visitors. As Frederick Douglass would write of slavery, Lincoln maintained that the effects of lawlessness were not simply confined to the ones committing it. Patriotic Americans who saw lawlessness acts go unpunished and the blatant hypocrisy of the rule of the strong would eventually turn against the government. Now, what I'll say about that, of course, uh, is that if Lincoln really was believing in the rule of law, right? well, then you have conventions in the southern states that actually went out and voted for secession. That's the rule of law. This is the voice of the people. The South was perfectly Republican. She continues, a growing disrespect for the law among other, among the demos, Schaub argues, will ultimately result in the overthrow of popular government. Now again, if Lincoln was really concerned about government and popular government, he wouldn't have opposed secession. Lincoln predicted that a tyrant from the family of the lion or the tribe of the eagle would rise and use the nation as a playground for his own inexhaustible ambitions and passions. Is that not what Lincoln did? Was he not a tyrant? He was called that by the opposition press, and I think correctly so. Lincoln's solution, Schaub says, was to elevate absolute fidelity to the law through cold, calculating, unimpassioned reason. Though this proposed seems utopian considering human nature, which is anything but coldly logical, she maintains he was fully aware that reason alone would not secure the required obedience. Now, this is interesting because if you look at what Lincoln said here and you go back to John Dickinson in 1787 of the Philadelphia Convention, what did Dickinson say? And it's actually a title of a book by Mel Bradford. The title is A Better Guide Than Reason. A Better Guide Than Reason. Dickinson, experience must be our only guide. Reason may mislead us. So what is Lincoln doing here? He's shifting America from an experience-driven federal republic to one of reason and ideology. Exactly what would play into the left. Lincoln made clear that the materials reason provides would need to be molded into general intelligence, sound morality, and in particular, a reverence for the Constitution and laws among citizens. Well, I think there was already that there. It was his party that did not have any reverence for the Constitution and laws. Now, Lincoln would say something about that. Well, you got to follow a bad law until it's overturned by the Supreme Court, but that's not, a, that's not what his party wanted to do. In fact, even in their own platform of 1860, the Republican Party was calling for nullification, and in fact, they were calling for a secession at other times. Lincoln himself said secession was okay in 1848. She writes that mothers, teachers, and preachers would need to help inculcate a civic education worthy of Republican citizenship through 
habituation and piety. Mothers, teachers, and preachers. Now, um, that's good. That's fine. But what has she just done? Except for mothers, um, she's gone to a professional class of people, teachers, who have an absolute disdain for anything that would be considered foundational in America, tradition in particular. So, yes, ideology. She's looking at ideology here. This is, this is really troubling that the conservatives, quote-unquote, would go to this stuff. Through this hard work, reverence for the law would become a political religion of the nation, a commonly overinterpreted phrase of Lincoln's that should be read in a straightforward manner. A political religion, a secular religion. This is what we have. A disaster. And again, this is why conservatives are a disaster when they cite Lincoln over and over again. Lincoln, Lincoln taught that an important condition of lawfulness was following bad laws, such as the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Schaub notes that he believed uh, all laws should be religiously obeyed until they are repealed or reformed through constitutional channels, that is, by political representatives of a rightful majority. Government, either by majority or minority, acting in violation of the law, in Lincoln's view, would ultimately descend into anarchy, as evidenced by the secession crisis that preceded his presidency. But secession is not anarchy. That was popular government. That was the people of the state saying, we are going to leave the Union. It's not anarchy. Anarchy would be the absence of government. These people didn't leave a government and not create government. They believed in government. But they believed that the government was being abused or would be abused by a party in power they didn't trust and that they would ignore the Constitution. And they pointed to their resistance to enforcing the Fugitive Slave Act, which they said was a constitutional law. And as the Supreme Court said it too, they, re they resisted the constitutional channels. This is All this is just, I mean, Lincoln is making stuff up as he went. And of course, anyone like Schaub or Sabo that goes out and says these things are sacrosanct is part of the problem. Zeroing in on implication of this argument, Schaub contends that the concept of civil disobedience thus had no place in Lincoln's politics. She contrasts Lincoln's and, surprisingly, Malcolm X's strict adherence to the twin alternatives of bullet, ballots or bullets, free government or appealing to the right of revolution, to Martin Luther King's antinomian advocacy for civil disobedience. King, she argues, inflated the role that disobedience played in bringing about positive social change and could have had the unintentional effect of eroding respect for the rule of law in our world today. Although this argument challenges part of our modern moral consensus on King and the civil rights movement, Schaub's contention needs to be taken seriously and thought through. I mean, this, in this case, I would agree with Schaub that King and Malcolm X shouldn't be held up as conservative stalwarts, right? I mean, X never would, but King is often made into a conservative. It's ridiculous. The last part of the piece. Finally, she turns to the second inaugural in which Lincoln reads our national story as a struggle between the principles of natural right enshrined in the Declaration and the Constitution and the violation of those principles in American slavery. Rising above even the category of political thought, the speech is ultimately a profound meditation on the judgment God exacted on America due to the presence of chattel slavery. This is, I mean, again, Lincoln was uh, making stuff up as he went. In writing that Lincoln's second inaugural deserves to be called his 1619 address, Schaub is not validating the ideological re revisionism of the New York Times 1619 project. But what's interesting about that is that, and I've said this, I said this in Chronicles, if you follow 
1619 Project and their line of thinking, if you follow that and you follow Lincoln, then the 1619 people would be more in line with Lincoln than than the conservatives. This is where the conservatives have to go through contortions to try to figure this stuff out. No, 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 no. Lincoln was not he, not, he would not have favored the 1619 Project. No, no, no. He wouldn't have done it. But, of course, there is a connection. This is why conservatives shouldn't cite Lincoln. Instead, she argues that Lincoln's citing of the bondman's 250 years of unrecreated toil dates back to nearly 1619, the year of the arrival of the first slaves on American shores. This is exactly what the 1619 Project is saying. Uh, she contends that Lincoln's source was likely the 18th-century historian William Grimshaw, who described captives from the coast of Guinea arriving on a Dutch ship and being sold to Virginia planters between 1616 and 1619. Now, again, this is exactly what the 1619 Project does. It is ideological, but so was Lincoln. I just mentioned Lincoln is creating idea, uh, creating an ideological nation in 1863 that did not exist before. Some historians have disputed this claim. According to Richard Samuelson, it's not clear that the slaves the Dutch brought to Virginia in 1619 were, after their sale, treated as slaves. Well, this is true. They were indentured servants. And indentured servitude was there before 1619, and just as slavery was in America, in the Americas before 1619, whether it was Indians or white indentured servants, it was already there, right? In fact, he notes, slavery did not yet exist in colonial law. That's very true. Some may well have been treated as slaves, as the term can be defined, but others probably were not. Kevin Goodsman has voiced a related concern. Recent archival research has established that John Rolfe's famous letter referring to the arrival of 20 uh, and odd Negroes may well not have referred to the first blacks in the colony. Nevertheless, whatever the specific date when the first slaves arrived, Lincoln saw slavery as a malignant cancer upon the nation that allowed, was allowed to fester and grow, a cancer of the nation excised at the unfathomable cost of nearly... 620,000 deaths and 1.5 million casualties. Because the offense of slavery belongs to the nation, Schaub writes, the punishment is meted out to both North and South. She is right to highlight the contrast between Lincoln's attempts at reunion and the national discord that has resulted partly due to the 1619 Project's teachings. Wait a second here. Lincoln was the most uh, controversial president in American history. Lincoln was sowing discord. The, the, you're saying a guy that presided over a war that ju you just said cost 620,000 people, probably closer to a million, and a million and a half casualties is somehow not sowing discord? You can't make this up. No, 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 no. He was trying to heal the Union. No, he wasn't. He wasn't trying to do that at all. Lincoln had time after time, chance after chance, before he assumed the presidency to save the Union. And he chose not. He chose party over Union. This is clear. That's what Lincoln wanted. He wanted the Republican Party to be ascendant. He wanted political power. He didn't care about the Union at all. If he cared about the Union, he would have offered to compromise. No. Lincoln was sowing discord. In her view, the 1619 Project is at its core a full-scale attack on 1776, 1787, and even 1865. No, it's not. Not in their view of what it is. It's an attack on those things if 
you oppose the proposition nation. But Schaub doesn't. This is where, see, these people have to, oh, no, 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 they're not really one of us. I know they say things that sound like us, but they're not really one of us. Rather than issuing an invitation for a conversation between fellow citizens, it harangues and cajoles citizens using slanted and false history, weaponizing their sincere morality to secure specific political ends. The 1619 Project undoubtedly strikes at the heart of civic friendship and the very possibility of a union of the unity of the American mind on principles and practices. There's not much difference between the 1619 Project and the 1776 Commission Report. There really isn't. It's just a slight difference of interpretation. Slight difference, but they're both basing it on Lincolnian nationalism, and they're both basing it on Lincolnian, uh, the Lincolnian Revolution of 1863. It's the same thing. Contrary to the 1619 Project's teachings that the nation is irredeemably racist, Schaub argues that 1776 was not a continuation of the spirit of 1619, but its antithesis. Indeed, instead. It was the Confederate Constitution of 1861 that enshrined the spirit of 1619. (laughs) You can't make this stuff up. Look, I've already done a whole podcast on the Confederate Constitution and how it was essentially the same as the U.S. Constitution. On the things that people would say it was different, it was the same. That Yes, they used the word slaves, and yes, they used Negro slavery, but the Confederate Constitution forbade the central government from from abolishing slavery. The U.S. Constitution did not allow the central government to abolish slavery. The Confederate Constitution did not prohibit the states from abolishing slavery. The U.S. Constitution did not prohibit the states from abolishing slavery. I mean, I could go down the line where these things are, are identical, and we know they're identical because that's the way it worked in practice in both cases. Right? But see... To people like Schaub and Sabo, the Confederacy is bad. Calhoun is bad. When in reality, when you look at the Confederate Constitution, any conservative, excluding slavery, which if you have to look at the original Constitution, you have to say excluding slavery because it allowed for slavery to exist. It wasn't an anti-slavery document. I don't care what uh, William Lloyd Garrison or the Garrison Institute or other people say. It wasn't an anti-slavery document. In fact, it was basically a mute document on it, but it wouldn't. It didn't have any positive except for abolishing the slave trade, which, by the way, the Confederate Constitution forbade as well, the international slave trade, identical, right? This is the thing. They're not different. They're not different. I've made it a case that they're basic, the, the U.S. Constitution was basically a uh, not an anti-slavery, and it wasn't a pro-slavery document either. It was just mute. The Confederate Constitution, you could say, is more pro-slavery in that it uses the term slaves and Negro slaves. But these are the same powers that they said the United States government didn't have as well. So there isn't really anything different there. Rather than sowing division and disunion, Lincoln's speeches were directed toward recovery of the nation's integrity, reconjoining word and deed, promise and performance. So he wasn't sowing division and disunion. No, no, no. Lincoln wasn't doing that. Oh, just ignoring the fact there's a war going on I mean, caused by Lincoln's election, essentially, and what he was doing leading up to that. But no, 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 he wasn't sowing division or disunion. No, 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 no. Lincoln wasn't doing that. He's a unionist. Ridiculous. He did not blame sociological abstractions such as white privilege or other charged terms that are often used to browbeat opponents in submission. Lincoln nationalized the wrong of slavery rather than racializing it. 
Um, Lincoln, of course, would make statements that would be considered to be white privilege, right? I mean, so you can't square these things. Schaub shows that Lincoln attempted to blunt the force of northern moralistic arrogance, southern regressive resentment, and white race hatred, and black rage by insisting on the complicity of both North and South in American slavery. He emphasized a shared national suffering as a consequence of shared national transgression, calling citizens to adhere to the country's founding principles, quashing enmity and malice, and restoring civic friendship and peace. Now, one thing it is right here, look, slavery was a national enormity, not just a Southern enormity, not just a Southern institution. It was a national institution. And as Kevin Gutzman actually points out in the piece that Sabo cites, um, this, this idea that somehow slavery was created by white Americans is incorrect. Uh, and so I think that's part of the complexity of all of this. And so racializing is something 1619 Project does do, but they're basing this again on a Lincolnian vision, a promise of a proposition. Mere words, she notes, cannot bring forth the new birth of freedom. Only battlefield victories could do that. Logos, in other words, should lead to praxis. Lincoln's speeches were aimed at refashioning new props and pillars to support self-government in his time, but what props and pillars are necessary for us today? How can reverence for the law and peace between citizens be secured in an age of increasing lawlessness and bifurcation? And who among us has the ambition necessary to carry out this national recovery? Once again, we can turn to Lincoln's wisdom. No, we can't. And our quest to find answers to these difficult questions. The dogmas of the quiet past are inadequate to the stormy present. The occasion is piled high with difficulty. We must rise with the occasion. As our case is new, so we must think anew and act anew. We must disenthrall ourselves, and then we shall save our country. That's just word salad. We, this, this is Kamala Harris. Uh, the past is... Uh, the, the, the bad things of the past, it's, it's, uh, we can't, the, the, the thoughts of the past, we have to think about the present and the future. We must rise to the present because of the future. And so we have to think new and act new. And then we, we can't think of the past and then we'll save our country if we do that. This Kamala Harris nonsense. I mean, look, this is, this is Kamala Harris all over this stuff. We, we see these things. This is exactly what Lincoln was doing. It's word salad stupidity. Lincoln's speeches are a bunch of word salad that mean nothing. Which is why I'm going to hammer him in that new class I've got coming up this year at McClanahan Academy. I've also got one coming out on John C. Calhoun and a couple of others that are going to be really good too and the same theme. All right. See you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>